Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Tech Disruptors podcast hosted by Bloomberg Intelligence. In this podcast series, we talk with C-level company executives and management teams about their views on disruption and how it's driving their decision-making and strategy. My name is Wu Jinho, analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence, and today I'm pleased to have our guest, Nutanix CEO, Rajiv Ramaswani. Hello, Rajiv, and welcome to the show. Wu Jinho, it's great to be here with you today. Great, thanks. And before we think, kick things off, I want to provide a brief intro on the theme and, and, and on Nutanix and on your background. So multi-cloud has been an emerging theme for all of us at BI, especially with enterprises become more prudent on cloud spending. Uh, this isn't a new theme, and Nutanix and its hyperconverged systems approach have been banging the multi-cloud tr- uh, drum uh, for uh, several years now, well before it was fashionable. Now, Rajiv took over as CEO almost three years ago, and he comes with deep infrastructure chops, CEO uh, of product and, and cloud at VMware, EVP of infrastructure and networking at Broadcom, and multiple roles at, C- at Cisco. Uh, so just as important as helming the company and the product strategy, he's actually tasked with a business model shift towards, a, uh, towards subscription revenue. So, so with that, I'd like to start off my uh, discussions by asking a quick elevator pitch on, on you as well as the uh, Nutanix. I've been in the tech industry, what, almost 35 years now. Uh, and as you already mentioned, uh, the two companies that I was at, I'm a technologist and an engineer by training. Uh, and I still you know, think of myself as a product guy. Uh, and of course, started out as a technology research guy who became a product developer, ran teams, and uh, did a startup once upon a time, and then now, you know, more of a business leader. So that's me. On Nutanix, look, as you said already, companies are in a multi-cloud world. They have application that run everywhere. They have data that needs to be managed and the data is everywhere as well. In company data centers, at edges and remote offices and manufacturing sites, et cetera, and in multiple public clouds. What Nutanix does is that we provide a single software platform that allows companies to run all of these applications and manage their data wherever they'd like to run it. We have a full stack, uh, compute, virtualized compute, storage, networking, and uh, everything that you need to build a cloud, everything that you need to operate a cloud and manage it as well, everything you need to store your data, and it can run anywhere. Okay, that, that, that's great. So, so you pioneered hyperconverge, right? And and you mentioned compute, storage, and networking. Why why is it becoming more important today? Yeah, today when HCI was first uh, started, hyperconverged infrastructure. It really was a way to break down silos within data centers. Mm-hmm. Uh, teams had, you know, companies had separate teams to manage compute, their servers, separate teams to manage storage, and separate teams to manage networking. And a lot of that is still the case today. And they would buy different equipment and gear and different software, and they would have these teams manage them all separately, complex and expensive. What Hyperconverge did was to bring all of these together to run on commodity hardware, just standard servers. Uh, with built-in storage and integrated and simplified everything in a scale-out architecture so that you would simplify management. You could run all of this with one team, fully automated, so you need a lot fewer people to run this infrastructure. And it's a scale-out model where you just pay as you grow. You keep adding nodes as you need to add more capacity without having to plan upfront in terms of what you need. So HCI broke down silos across or within the data center. Now, today, if you think about what the silos are, the new silos today are clouds. Every cloud is different. So they have you know, they have a different set of tools. You need different teams to manage them, different FinOps, uh, different security policies. 
uh, have different tooling, et cetera. And so we see with HCI the ability to build a common single cloud platform that can cut across all of these silos and provide companies with that simple, easy way to operate in a multi-cloud world. Got it. And now, now it, it almost sounds as if it's like a, like a medium-sized enterprise, enterprise type of uh, solution. You know, how does that differ or the advantages? Uh, what is the advantage of hyperscale versus a best-of-breed uh, approach? And are you starting to see large enterprises look into the hyper-converged approach? And then I fully get it from, from an operating standpoint. It seems as if uh, there is an operating advantage by going through a hyper, hyperscale uh, side as well. Yeah, I think if you, first of all, if you look at our customer base today, we have about 24,000 customers mm -hmm. and we have about 1,000 of the global 2,000, the largest companies in the world. Okay. So we already, you know, deployed in enterprises at very significant scale. So we go all the way from you know, the top of the pyramid to the very large enterprises to smaller, medium enterprises, all the way down to commercial, public education, et cetera, right? So the platforms, one of the nice things about the platform is because of this model, it's a scale-out model. It can handle small environments as well as the most complex, very large-scale environments. Now, if you look at, again, uh, to your question there, from an enterprise perspective, it's a platform that can run all their workloads, all their virtualizable workloads, including their most mission-critical applications. Uh, that includes ERP systems, databases, security analytics, and some of the modern containerized workloads and AI workloads as well. So one platform to run all those workloads, but more importantly also now, it's not just in their data center, that same platform extends. So into Amazon, it extends into Azure, it extends into managed service providers and also into their edges so that they get that single platform and ease of use to be able to operate across all of these hyperscalers and their on-prem data centers. Got it. I want to delve, delve deeper into the multi-cloud in a moment here. I, I know you're also managing this business model transition. Uh, when, when the company IPO, this was before your time in, back in 2016, it was a hardware and software company, right? And then you tr transitioned to a software model starting in 2018. That is not an easy thing to do, but it seems as if you're making a lot of progress where other uh, companies have failed. Uh, where is Nutanix in the uh, transition today? Yes, and that's a, that's a really good point. And by the way, we made two transitions in our journey as a company. The first, you know, we know, you know, we went from selling hardware and software to really only selling software on our book. Right. Okay, and then from there, we made the transition to subscription. Yep. Now, it's, uh, as you know, it's a, it's a transition that many companies have done, some better than others. Where we are is that we took the gloves off and said, we're going to convert all our business to subscription. And we did that. And of course, when you do that, you realize that you're going to drop in revenue and a drop in cash flow. And then once the renewals start kicking in, that's when you get back on the other side of the curve and you start getting leverage. Like the flywheel effect on the sales, right? Exactly. So where we're at right now is we very quickly transition all our business to subscription. So our business is all 100% subscription pretty much now, with the exception of a small amount of professional services that we sell, okay? Uh, less than 10%. Uh, and... Where we are at in that journey is while we've transitioned the entire company into subscription, we haven't fully benefited yet from a steady state renewal model. Mm -hmm. The beauty of the subscription model is that uh, if you deliver a product that customers like, and in fact, in our case, 
you know, we have a very high NPS score uh, of 90. It's a little, you know, better than probably almost anybody in the industry because customer delight is such a foundational principle for us. And customers tend to use us for mission-critical applications. So once you sell, as even things go well, they will likely run you. And our renewal rates are quite high. Our GRR has been at 90 plus. So the renewal, the cost of uh, processing the renewal is much lower than the cost of acquiring new business. So as more and more of this new business that we've sold come up for renewal, we get operating model leverage. So we can renew that business without incurring a lot of sales and marketing costs. So in fact, we say, uh, we've said publicly, it's about 80% less uh, cost for us to transact a renewal related to new business. And if you look at where we are in the journey today, we've certainly, you know, we are at a point where now we're cash flow positive, delivering positive operating income and top line is growing, but we're still not there fully in terms of the renewal uh, being a steady state. We don't disclose the renewal makes on a quarterly basis, but what we said is that today, renewals are still less than about half of our business. And steady state software companies tend to have renewals at about 70% of their business. So we still have a fair bit of room to continue to grow and deliver operating margin leverage. But to that point, right, that still means you're driving growth through a new business. And, and, and it seems as if you have a big runway of, of growth opportunities ahead of you through deeper penetration of HCI software with, with new, I'm, I'm happy, I'm fine with the 50-50, but it seems as if there, there is this new, new customer opportunity um, available to you. Absolutely. I mean, I think you know, the core uh, lifeblood of our company is this platform that can now really move and deliver value in a multi-clone environment. And if you look at that opportunity, I think for us, things have changed a bit over the last few years in terms of how companies are thinking about this. If you were to talk to enterprise CIOs, perhaps three, four, five years ago, many of them said, well, I'm going to the public cloud. And uh, now if you talk to them, they're saying, well, it's much more nuanced now. I'm going to be in a hybrid cloud and on more of a permanent basis, I'm going to look at what I need to put in the public cloud, how I'm going to manage my costs in the public cloud. And I'm going to decide that, you know, it might be better for some of these applications to remain in data centers and run them efficiently or steady state workloads to actually be you know, run at lower cost potentially in, in on-prem data centers. So that environment, of course, that mixed environment with more mix of on-prem and public cloud works perfectly to what we deliver as a company. Got it. And then another point, you know, you, you went to an all software subscription model moving away from hardware. You know, we, we know who the big hardware guys are, whether it's Dell or HPE. I mean, how, how does that relationship work? Is it the customer who pulls the cart for you? Or does someone like an HPE help you in terms of that sale? Yeah, it's an interesting, uh, it's an interesting mix of both, actually. First thing is we have today a platform that's certified to run at all the major server manufacturers. That includes Dell, HPE, Lenovo, Fujitsu, Supermicro, you know, the list of server manufacturers. So it can run on anybody's platform. And ultimately, it's a customer choice. The customer you know, decides what hardware platform they want to pay now, at the same time, we also have partnerships with some of these companies more so than others. Mm -hmm. So today we have, uh, uh, you know, Dell is certified to work with us, but Dell also has their own offering. Right. Now, HP, we have a, a deeper partnership uh, and as well as, as with Lenovo, right? Those two, we have more of a partnership. In Lenovo also OEMs our product. HP OEMs us as part of their GreenLake offering as well. So, so it's a mix because in this world, we have uh, all these server manufacturers also have their own separate storage that they're selling. So they have to look at that versus selling HCI. So there's always a, a combination of we partner and we compete. 
Got it. Okay. Well, let's let's dive into the meat of this conversation here. Uh, you were talking about clouds and also more multiple clouds, right? And and it's an extension of uh, an IT infrastructure. Let's. I, I want to talk about the current environment. We know that corporate uh, IT budgets are tightening. Cloud capacity seems to be one of the ca- casualties. And and you, you had mentioned that that customers are rethinking their cloud investments, right? If so, how? How are they rethinking that? Yeah, I think the first thing that's changed now is that there is a significant focus on DCO, mm-hmm. total cost of ownership. In fact, we put together a team of what we call cloud economists. To, uh, you know, they're really accountants and financial people who, who we get them involved in engagements with customers to help them understand the cost of various options. And what does it cost to run on-prem? What does it cost to run in the public cloud? What are the different options? And... What's happening now is that people, are, our customers are much, much more sensitive about making investments based on DCO as opposed to just say, okay, I'm going to go to the cloud. Right. right? That's, that's one thing uh, driving uh, change now. The second, I think, is there's also more consciousness about where are we going to put our data and applications. Some of it is driven by regulatory issues. Uh, for example, the European Union, especially in financial services, they ask for what's your exit strategy. Uh, you don't want to be locked into a particular cloud. You want to be able to go move your stuff. It's not that you would move them every day, but you want to be having the flexibility to say, okay, well, I can run here tomorrow if I want to go run someplace else. I want to be able to run there. So that's another regulatory consideration coming in. Data privacy and locality is coming in as well. There's some notion of sovereign clouds in terms of wanting to make sure your data is kept within country or within region and not sent somewhere else. So there's a multitude of factors that are coming in together to say, okay, now you almost want to look at your application landscape and say, where am I going to run these applications? Or every particular application is going to be you know, best suited to run in a particular location. Now, 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 you said you have cloud economists. So one of the things that that I've been trying to figure out are are egress, egress fees which almost seems as if that's like a, a pseudoscience on, on trying to figure out because um, uh, the cloud companies, uh, one, want, want to have vendor lock-in to their own clouds. And, and, and two, those fees in general tend to be tougher to figure out. Have, have, you, have you been able to figure that out, uh, number one, on terms of egress fees and, and also a break-even point to, for the customers to help uh, CIOs uh, make, uh, make the math moving out of the cloud sensible? Yeah, I think uh, certainly, uh, you know, look, I wouldn't say that cloud repatriation is a, a big trend. We have seen that happen in instances, all right? And, but I don't think it's, I can't call it out of saying every customer is doing it. That's not the case. More, if you look at the journey, it's not as if enterprises have moved all their workloads to the cloud already. In fact, most of them have not. The majority of enterprise applications are still sitting inside data centers. So what I would say now is that it's a more careful migration of workloads into the cloud rather than a trend of, you know, significant trend of workloads moving out of the public cloud. Now, in the instances that we have seen, you know, some applications being migrated back on-prem, yeah, you do account for the cost of egress. Uh, and that's a one-time charge, right, to get uh, that out. And so what you always have to look at it as, okay, I'm going to pay this fee to get my data out of that public cloud. Okay, but once I get it out there, then on a steady state basis, I have your lower operating costs. Okay. And you then look at the equation and say, what's my payback going to be? Okay, 
Now, now, if we think about this concept, uh, it, it is picking up steam by, by the other tech bell, bellwethers. Uh, you've been talking about it well be- multi-cloud well before it was very fashionable. What has changed uh, on the enterprise side and on the cloud side to make it much more mainstream outside of the IT budgets? Because it seems as if there are a lot of silos that they're trying to break down and then move workloads from cloud to cloud. Is that the right way of thinking about it? Or is there something else that's uh, driving this multi-cloud trend? No, I think it's, it's multiple factors as we talked about. By the way, there was a, a, a I'll put in a plug here for a paper that Anderson Horowitz folks wrote about, I think it was about a year and a half ago, where they talked about public cloud being a trillion dollar paradox. Uh, in the sense that they, what they, their thesis was that it's very easy for, especially startups, to, to start building stuff in the cloud, right? It's an easy button, all services are available. But once you get to steady state workloads and you start operating at scale, you realize that the cost, you're giving up a lot of your margin dollars to the cloud players uh, to run your stuff there. And that right. you would be, you know, much lower cost if you were to go run those workloads in, in your own data centers. Uh, that, but that's the cost angle. But in addition to the cost angle, there are other factors. So if you look at some of the things here, in terms of migration to cloud. A lot of companies anticipated a much easier migration of workloads to the cloud than the reality. So the reality is that you can't simply take an existing application that's running inside a data center and just simply move it to the public cloud. When you go cloud native, you have to spend significant effort refactoring or replatforming these applications. That incurs significant cost, but also there's a talent shortage. You have to have your developers, your software developers now get involved in terms of redoing their application to make it run. So that's a slow process. It's expensive. And so what people realize is, okay, this migration is not happening as fast as they like it to on the first place. And then once it does migrate, then they realize that it's not, you know, at steady state when you operate this higher cost as well. And then there's on top of that, you layer in the fact that now there's more regulatory scrutiny uh, restrictions in terms of you know where you want to put your data and your applications. So all of those, I think, uh, are are creating factors. Now, there's one other factor that I think we should cover, which is there is also what we see is a growing number of applications, new applications being built to run in the edge. And those applications, you know, many many uh, examples there. For example, fraud detection for retailers, optimization of mining processes for a mining company. Uh, that we are uh, that we are working with, uh, yeah, you know. So I think, for example, yeah, with our mining company uh, that uh, is a customer of ours, they want to build insights from sensor data that they just send into the mining equipment that's sitting in a, in a mine someplace, and uh, they're looking to make general inferences from you know whole set of inputs, and in this case, you know, tailing you know piles wild data, and they want to determine potential failure safety issues. So these types of applications are new. Uh, you have auto manufacturers looking to you know, have visual inspection of defects for cars coming out of their production line. That's a manufacturing factory application. So a lot of these require local compute, local inferencing for yeah, use of AI, where the training might be done in, in the public cloud. And so there's a whole set of new edge use cases that are also driving computing towards the edge, but it's, again, a hybrid model. You probably do training you know, in the cloud or in your data center, but you do inferencing at the edge. And Edge is still a relatively nascent development, and, and that's going to continue to grow, especially when we have IoT uh, development, as well as uh, general Edge server compute going uh, closer to the end user. So, so there's a growing opportunity there that probably didn't exist 
you know, a decade ago. Yes. And it's still nascent. It's still emerging. It's all new containerized applications. And we just, for example, uh, just, you know, one of the largest deals, the largest deal of our last quarter was with a semiconductor uh, uh, manufacturing company. And uh, they are modernizing, they modernized their manufacturing applications to run, be containerized. And they uh, have chosen our platform to run it on across all their manufacturing sites. And, uh, the, and they want to deliver more agility. So this is an example of, you know, modern applications, emerging applications, whatever things for edge or smaller data center type use cases were. Has, has the cloud actually helped your, your licensing model adoption? So for example, since we've been used to the cloud for the last decade or so, and we've been paying it on a subscription basis, and now you're coming in on a subscription basis on-prem as well as on the cloud, has that really helped uh, customers understand what you're doing on the licensing side? Yeah, in fact, one of the things that we pride ourselves on as a company is providing simplicity and freedom and flexibility for our customers. Now, as part of that, when we provide a license to our customers and they buy a license from us, a subscription license, they can use it anywhere with no restrictions. So they can use it. Explain. So use it anywhere with no extra. Yeah, so it may may be. So you choose to run an application using that license in their data centers. Tomorrow they might say, well, I need more capacity. I'm going to reuse this and run this application in AWS or Azure. That exact same license is fully portable. They can take the license, redeploy it from their data center into a hyperscaler such as AWS or Azure, and they don't have to pay anything. It's completely flexible. And they could do the reverse as well. They could be using us on bare metal in AWS or Azure, and then they could then bring it back and run it on-prem, and it's completely portable. No restriction at all. And... You know, they can run basically on-prem on, on any hardware vendor also, right? They can move the license from, say, a particular server to another server, also no restriction. So this complete portability allows them that freedom. They are not locked in anywhere. They can actually choose where they want to deploy it. And as their needs change, the license continues to go with them. And it's, it's uh, you know, they can do what they want with it. Do, do, do the CIOs get that concept yet? Yes, I think it's a, it's a very powerful concept. In fact... When we sell uh, our products, we tell them, hey, here's a cloud infrastructure suite. You get it and you can run it anywhere. You know, you're buying a license from us. You can choose to run some of these licenses in your data center. Some of them you might want to use in a public cloud and you can mix and match and move them around. So that's clearly a valid proposition that resonates with customers. They don't want to be locked in. In fact, in some cases, what we find is that, you know, uh, with some other players there, there is lock-in. They do not allow the same kind of portability that we do. And customers know it and they recognize it. Got it. So, so we, we gave a good backdrop on, on, on multi-cloud and why people are doing it. Like I, I cheated in preparation of this, of this podcast and, and you have these four phases of uh, multi-cloud enablement, infrastructure modernization, automating IT ops, integrate public clouds, and then the uni- uh, unifying the, the whole ecosystem. Mm-hmm. Now, now, over the past couple of years during the COVID period, there was a lot of investment. I, I think we're on the path of infrastructure modernization, but where are we or where are most companies in that journey uh, to, uh, to, to making that multi-cloud move? Yeah, by the way, first of all, I think there's still a lot of infrastructure to be modernized. You're not you know, by any means uh, done. In fact, when I look at the opportunity for HCI itself, in terms of what we do uh, with our hybrid multi-cloud, a lot of it is simply continuing to do that first phase of infrastructure modernization. There's a lot of what we call three-tier legacy architecture still out there. Separate compute storage network out there. Uh, many, many tens of billions of dollars still sold. 
And there's still a huge opportunity for us to continue eating into that. In fact, if you look at what Garton and others have predicted, but what's happening with HCI is that we're slowly but surely continuing to go at the expense of replacing legacy infrastructure. And so that that journey continues, and we still have a lot uh, left in that uh, in that side of the house. But for the ones that have done that already, really, I think many of them do have you know a public cloud presence already, and they're trying to figure out how best can they integrate this public cloud with what they already have. So, for example, using our platform, we see them do uh, several use cases. The first one, for example, is you can run some applications in their data centers but you can do disaster recovery for those applications in the public cloud. And the nice thing about disaster recovery is you only need to buy the capacity when you need it, as opposed to having it sitting around idle most of the time. And if you want to do it yourself when you had it in a data center, you'd probably have to buy those servers, all the capacity, keep it there in the event there's a disaster. In the public cloud, you have the luxury of being able to scale up. As you need capacity on demand. Yes, capacity on demand. So it's a good use case for, uh, for public cloud. Another is just elastic expansion, right? Capacity and demand for your temporary, your time of year, for example, needs. If you're a retailer, we have we have retail customers who run our platform on-prem for steady state, and then come holiday season, they need a lot more capacity to handle their order volume. Yep. And what they do is they then use the exact same software, spin it up in a public cloud AWS or Azure data center, and they uh, they then uh, can give that up when the the uh, the peak season ends. Uh, that's the second use case. A third use case is uh, geographic expansion. Uh, so we had uh, a customer, a bidding company, FSP in the UK. They were using our software, uh, and uh, uh, their business was operating in Europe and primarily in the UK. And they wanted to open up operations in Asia. And Asian uh, laws require that you have local presence. You store your data locally. They needed to figure out how to do this in a cost-efficient way quickly. Normally, they would have to go out there, probably acquire data center space, have people on the ground, and deploy something, which would have taken them many, many months and expense. Instead, what we were, what they were able to do with us was within a month, they were just able to take the same software that they ran in their UK data center and run them on our platform in, uh, uh, in an AWS data center. Yeah. And they were up and running in business within a month. So that's the other use case. And the last use case I'll say is that for cloud migration itself. So if you want to get out of your data centers and you want to move to the public cloud, we still have people doing that. This is the easy button. You do not have to go refactor or replatform applications. You can essentially take the same applications that you have running in your data center and move that assets into the public cloud and be in the public cloud very quickly. And if you want to modernize them, replatform them, you can do that later on a slow basis. It doesn't, uh, the actual move into the public cloud can be done very, very quickly and very, very cost effectively. That's interesting. I, that's probably another podcast in terms of meet, moving an app, a, a non-cloud native application into the public cloud without refact. That's, that's, that's something we can dive deeper into. But for the purposes of our discussion, where where are we? Where were you said that most people are still on uh, uh, infrastructure modernization, right? And trying to move uh, move along those lines. But uh, for, for Nutanix, where is the the land and expand point uh, for yeah. for some of your customers? Yeah, I think it's uh, our uh, yeah. If you look at uh, how we go to market today, a lot of our business is still very much on the infrastructure modernization. Okay. Play right where typically our land model is we will land. Uh, for a HCI use case, 
when they're consolidating, going from C-tier or legacy architecture to HCI. And they might do that for subset of their application, maybe one application or a handful of applications. That's our land. Uh, especially in larger customers, that's typically how we land. Very large enterprises, that's how we land. And once we land on expansion, happens in three dimensions. Uh, the first dimension is just more of the same use case. For example, we land for virtual desktops and remote user support. They'll have more remote users that they add to the platform. That's an easy expansion. The second expansion is selling more of our portfolio. So right. they might land with the success of the portfolio. And you, know, if you, you, you mentioned automate IT ops. Well, that's, that's uh, uh, yeah, we call it you know, cloud management. And they might choose to buy cloud management. They might choose to buy some embedded networking and security from us. Uh, they might choose to buy automation from us. So those are add-ons of the portfolio. We have a database management product that they might choose to buy on as well. So that's the, so that's the second vector of expansion. The third dimension for expansion for us is just bringing in more applications into the platform. They might land for supporting remote users. Then they start running, you know, uh, they, they start running databases, because, for example, on our platform and other workloads. So that's the expansion. And then the last step in the journey, the next step is, okay, we say all of the stuff, we can help you run the public cloud. And that's where we go in for the specific use cases that they may have, whether it be disaster recovery or temporary capacity needs or geographic expansion or even cloud migration. So that's, that's typically the expand play for us. Now, depending on, on the customer, of course, sometimes you know, the land can be much bigger. Uh, they might choose to use us for all their applications and workload especially if you're a smaller customer. Now, now, if, if I think about the last, oh, five to six years of IT investments, including M&A, it, it feels like we have multiple silos of the clouds, right? You'll have an instance of GCP, you'll have your own private cloud uh, and colo. Uh, someone makes an acquisition and they'll have their own AWS instance that doesn't really talk to, to the GCP. Yeah. Right. It's not necessarily cloud repatriation, but building the bridges between the clouds. Are you starting to see some of that activity? And then how do you solve building the bridges when the clouds really don't want to unlock that data for the customer? Yeah, I think, uh, again, yeah, like you said, every cloud wants to have all the workload on their platform. And we go in there, our whole approach to, to our customers to say, look, we can help you break that gap. Mm -hmm. We can help you with that common platform. So... For customers who already have these silos that, you know, and uh, then they're going to have to just figure out how to work with them. They might choose to say, well, okay, going forward, I'm now going to have a standardization approach here where I'm going to standardize on infrastructure as a service with a platform like Nutanix that gives me that portability option across these clouds for newer stuff that we do. And I'm also going to be careful about what sort of native services I use from each of these public clouds if I want my applications to be portable. So they, they start being much more conscious about, okay, now I'm going to go run this application. Do I want this application to be portable or not? And if not, they can just go off and use all the native public cloud services. And uh, if they do want to be portable, they have to be much more careful about using the set of services that are broadly available so that stuff can be migrated as needed. So that's uh, part one. Now, we also at our last uh, user conference, thanks, we also announced a, a a sort of a longer vision, you know, long-term vision for us, which is, yeah, we typically have operated the infrastructure layer as a company and we deliver the common infrastructure where companies can run their applications. Now, the next step up in that journey uh, for us and for our customers is, can we help our customers build applications that are inherently portable? 
And what is the T? Well, here's what it takes. So most of these applications are built using container framework for compute and Kubernetes, and that's available everywhere. You can get Kubernetes, you know, on our platform. You can get it on native public clouds. You can get them anywhere. Open standard. Yeah. So that's largely a standard open, you know, open source based standard that's available everywhere. But an application needs more than compute. In addition to the compute, it needs a whole range of data services. Of course, it needs standardized storage services, you know, whether it's files, objects, et cetera. But beyond that, it needs databases. It needs messaging. It needs caching. It probably needs some search. Now, our long-term vision is to be able to deliver a set of those services in a consistent way, regardless of what the underlying infrastructure is. So you could be running on-prem, you could be running cloud-native in Amazon or AWS or Azure, and you could still build your app using a standard database service such as Postgres that would be available everywhere. You could use standardized messaging like Kafka that would be available everywhere. And we will provide a way for all that to be delivered on our platform. So that now, in the long term, if you look at this freedom from cloud lock-in, you could build an app, you could use one of these services. And by the way, many of these are open source. Postgres is open source. Kafka is open source, for example. And if you do that properly, then your application inherently is portable across clouds. And you can then choose to run them really wherever you want without even having to have a common underlying infrastructure platform. So that's our long-term vision. Uh, we call it Project Beacon. And that's a multi-year journey. The ingredients are there. You know, today we already have a database service that we provide uh, where we help manage a whole range of databases for our customers. That's becoming available soon in native public clouds as well. And these other tools, uh, other capabilities like Kafka and others are available in the open source community. Right. So there is a long-term potential here for freedom from cloud locking. I almost get the sense based on what you're saying is that some of the inhibiting factors, it goes back to your um, infrastructure modernization comments, the, uh, the enterprises that need to catch up because the cloud tools are there. Uh, mm -hmm. they, and the, the enterprises need to build the infrastructure in-house uh, to make it portable uh, from cloud to cloud and to their private data centers. Indeed, yes. Let's move fast forward, right? I, I can't have a conversation without AI. So is, that, is there an opportunity, AI opportunity for Nutanix? Yes, I think there very much is. And I would look at this for us uh, across uh, three vectors. So the first vector is we see an opportunity for us to capture a lot of the emerging AI workloads. People are building new applications onto our platform. Uh, and I'll explain each of The second is we do see AI as a tool to help make our products better. The third is internally using AI to streamline our own internal operations and development. But those are the three vectors. Now, in the first vector, what we see is, of course, a proliferation of people using AI for yeah, and developing a whole range of new applications. Uh, once in particular, some that we talked about already, uh, for us, the edge is an emerging use case yep. uh, for AI, especially for inferencing. Those applications we discussed earlier, whether it's fraud detection, whether it's, uh, whether it's uh, looking at defects or optimizing your uh, mining infrastructure, all of those require inferencing and real-time computing at the edge. The models themselves could be trained elsewhere, whether it's data center or, not, or public clouds. And so we see that as an emerging opportunity for us to have those workloads run on our platform. So that's the first vector. And we certainly see those are emerging at this point, And we expect that you know, more and more of those workloads, we could provide a good, great platform for them to run on. The second is making our own products better. Uh, we've talked about AI operations. In fact, our team that does operations, you know, for cloud operations uh, product 
He called that AI operations because there's a lot of intelligence that's being built into the back end of that to analyze what's going on in the customer's environment to optimize it. Similarly, we have another product called Insights where we collect telemetry data from our customer and we use AI potentially in the back end to help deliver insights to our customers in terms of what they could be doing better. So these are examples of how we can use AI to make our products better. Not to mention things like customer support and so forth where people are using, you know, bots and so forth to automate more of this. Yep, the automation and the learnings. Exactly. And the third piece of it really is how do we streamline our own internal operations? Uh, we are a software development company. We have a large team of developers and uh, yeah, we are actively looking at how can we make our developers more productive by using tools uh, where potentially we could auto-generate code snippets and use that. So that's still fairly nascent for us. Uh, we also have to worry about things like IP protection leakage uh, as we start using some of these tools. But I see certainly a significant opportunity for us to become much more efficient and productive as a company uh, by using some of these tools. Now, now I, I read that you have an NVIDIA relationship. Can you just talk to uh, about the nature of the NVIDIA relationship and and um you know, can it help drive your AI uh, initiatives? Oh, very much so. I mean, if you look at a lot of the use cases for AI that I talked about, especially in the first vector of AI workloads, a lot of those workloads are compute intensive and they do use GPUs, largely NVIDIA at this point. So you're going to see NVIDIA GPUs used both at the edge as well as in the, in the cloud, cloud for training, edge for inference. And so as a platform, we support NVIDIA natively. So today, our customers can actually run Nutanix software on a server platform that has both CPUs and GPUs. And we help pass through the GPUs, we help virtualize the GPUs, make them available to the application and manage that for the customer. So that's very much there today. And in fact, a lot of these the reference architectures that people are looking at in terms of how to run these new workloads, AI workloads, uh, we have a reference architecture that uses you know, uh, Nutanix software running on commodity servers with GPUs. So clearly, you know, the relationship with NVIDIA is very important for us. We think that's uh, uh, it, it's a growing use case for, especially for us at the edge. I, I want to talk about some market dynamics and competitive dynamics, uh, especially given it's pretty interesting times right now, right? Look, Citrix that that's on desktop as a service competes with you for a little bit, right? They went private equity. VMware in the process of being acquired by uh, Broadcom. Are there an opportunity? Does the uncertainty and disruption from those M&As create an opportunity for Nutanix? And and why? We really haven't seen that in the numbers yet. Yeah. So uh, first, I think Citrix is a partner. We don't compete with Citrix. We okay. Them because we deliver the infrastructure and they deliver the desktop as a service on top of our infrastructure. So Got we it. have a strong partnership with them and, and that's moving along fine. Virtual desktops today represent only about 20% of our business overall. Uh, so that's a strong partnership, continues to NDR uh, and uh, all good there. Now the VMware situation is quite interesting. Clearly, I think very disruptive for the industry. We've had many, many conversations with all our customers in fact, I don't think there's a single conversation with a customer that I've had over the last year where this hasn't come out. Right. So customers are very concerned about the risk that this brings potentially, whether it be price changes, whether it be potentially reduced innovation or support levels as they run their applications and they're looking to reduce risk. Now, VMware also is used for a lot of mission critical applications across here, 200,000 plus customers. So 
the opportunity to migrate. We have been migrating VMware workloads for a long time now, from say VMware hypervisor to uh, Nutanix hypervisor. So we have a lot of experience doing that, but that tends to be a somewhat of a slow process. So we haven't really seen the lift and we haven't forecasted a big lift from people bringing us in as a second alternative to VMware or outright migrating from VMware. Yeah, because those things take time. Right. Uh, in fact, the first instinct of many customers when this deal was announced was to say, let me go lock in a three-year deal uh, or whatever deal I can get where my price is protected. And, and that gives me time to start thinking about what my plan B should be if I need a plan B. And so that a lot of that has happened. So for us, we see a long-term benefit, uh, assuming uh, the deal were to go through, right, which it still hasn't closed yet, uh, with people looking to potentially diversify and uh, look at other alternatives. Uh, but it just takes time. It takes time. Migrations uh, tend to be a bit slow, uh, but that does certainly create, say, a long-term potential tailwind for us. Well, so the sense I'm getting from you is that we have this planning process for the lift, and then once the planning process is through, it'll take some time to go with the shift, but the planning process is happening right now. The discussions yeah. of the planning is happening right now. Absolutely. Yeah. The engagements are quite broad spread uh, with our customer base uh, on this front, but the actual movement or the actual migration, I think everybody's in a wait and see more to see what happens. Some are related, unrelated. We're starting to see some movements on the, on the hyperscale cloud guys trying to make connections and API connections to each other clouds. I don't know how far that will go, but is that a risk to your value proposition? No, I don't think so. I think, again, uh, yeah, fundamentally, if you look at all the hyperscalers today, they are, they've all, by the way, now adopted a hybrid strategy. But hybrid for them largely means their cloud plus on-prem. It doesn't, you know, I don't think it's top of mind and a priority for them to really say, I'm going to be multi-cloud. Whereas for us, that's what we do. You know, fundamentally, our first, you know, our focus really is on providing that common platform across cloud. So, and that's our primary vector. Whereas for most cloud companies, it's like, okay, I want to land that workload in my cloud. That's their primary vector. By the way, if I need to provide an extension on-prem, I will do that with my hybrid offering. So it's just, we're coming at it from very different angles. And uh, so I don't think, I think, you know, the, the agreements to bridge clouds, I think are still fairly nascent. We'll see how it goes. But uh, the notion of trying to provide this commonality and a common infrastructure platform, I think is also, by the way, quite recent, right? Only now people are starting to embrace that uh, as hybrid and multi-cloud are becoming more mainstream now. So uh, we'll have to see how it goes. But we are pretty optimistic about uh, how customers are thinking about using us in their multi-cloud world. I, I want to wrap things up with this one final question. What are the one or two things investors don't understand about Nutanix that you really wish they knew better? So the first thing I would say is Nutanix is more than just a HCI company. Many investors think about what we were in the past, which is we were a company that did HCI and we support end-user computing. We have moved far beyond that in terms of the opportunity space that we are tackling right now. We are uh, now a multi hybrid multi-cloud platform company that runs all workloads in the enterprise growing opportunity to capture all those workloads and help customers migrate and use the work across multiple clouds. So it's a much bigger opportunity set that we are addressing compared to where we started out in our journey as a HCI company. That's the first point. The second point is what you alluded to about our subscription journey. We are at a point where, you know, the subscription transition is not an easy one to go through. 
And the first couple of years of going through that, it's tough. You see revenues drop, terms compress, cash flow go down. But we are past that at this point. And now we are at a point where we are starting to see expanding margins and operating leverage as we come out of that subscription journey. And so that should lead to continued top line growth and operating income leverage for the next several years first. I actually want to contextualize this uh, for you, Rajiv. Being outside of uh, HCI takes you from a $30 billion TAM to over a $60 billion TAM. So doubling the TAM by expanding uh, outside of HCI. So I I think this is something uh, investors should take away with. Um, Absolutely. And you very well said. Thank you. Great. And and Rajiv, thank you for being on on the podcast. Uh, Thank you for sharing your thoughts on the company and on on multi-cloud. Thank you very much. Great to be with you. Great. And and I think we'll wrap here. Uh, thanks, everyone, for joining us. Uh, we have a great lineup of guests, much uh, similar to Rajiv, in the near future. So hit the subscribe button to keep up to date uh, on the latest uh, episodes. Uh, you can catch uh, past Tech Disruptors on your favorite podcast platform. With that, so long until next time.